Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the last Torah portion for the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 40, 47 beginning at verse 28. For those of you who have been a part of our study for the entire book of Genesis, as we're coming to the conclusion of Genesis, um, I'm always saddened when we leave the book of Genesis. Not that I don't uh, enjoy the other books, but Genesis to me has always been a very personal uh, book. Every year, uh, as I go through the cycle and learn it, I, I don't know if you've had this experience yet, but for me... I feel like I get to know my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even better. That they become more real uh, to me uh, as we go through and, and examine it. And the reason I'm so encouraged by that and strengthened, because the more I see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, to become real, it is further evidence and convincing to me that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also real to me. That... I truly am, and as you are, descendants of the ancients. And that this God who made these covenants and made these agreements with our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has also made the same agreements with us. That we too can experience and enjoy all the blessings, the heritage that has been passed down from our fathers. There is a day coming when the scripture says very clearly and very plainly, we're going to find out who the real sons of Abraham are. Those by faith, those who have a personal and intimate relationship with God. This book is a wonderful instruction to us, a reminder of our heritage and gives us a basis of how to begin to walk before God and to be part of something more than just us. Now, as we come to this part, this final part, we come to the conclusion of Jacob's life. We've been looking at the life of Joseph up to this point in Egypt, and now all of the families unified. They've now gone down into Egypt, and we're going to conclude the life of Jacob, and the book of Genesis concludes with a blessing, Jacob's blessing upon his sons and upon his family. But this is also a conclusion in terms of the book of uh, Genesis that lays out what I consider to be some of the most profound and meaningful base doctrines, base teachings that, that we have to have. We've got to get them down solid. And quite honestly, many brethren have not yet come to that, that place of really resolving in their mind These relationships, yes, they want the heritage, yes, they want the blessings from the fathers, but there's a relationship that's being explained to us between those fathers and God, and that we are supposed to have that relationship too. And part of it is not only to know the fathers, but to know God. In fact, the real measure of spirituality that will be taught from here on out through what the rest of the scripture is, is whether or not you can lay claim to that you know God. Quite honestly, if you don't know God, you will not be part of his kingdom in the future. 
But if you say that I know God and then the things that come with the knowledge of God follow, then you are part of that kingdom. And what has been trying to illustrate to us is that God did something unique. Well, he created, that was unique all by itself, but beyond that, he then struck a relationship, struck a relationship with our father Abraham, called him a friend. And then he added blessings and promises to him, and they extend down through the fathers, and that's what we're seeing here in in the book of Genesis. But those are extended to us. And if we do not lay claim to him, if we don't have this heritage, if we don't have the same relationship with God that our fathers had, then we have missed out. As much as we may want it, the fact is we have not received it. And so part of what is going to be explained in this last portion are what I consider to be some of the most profound teachings about who God is. It's really about Jacob in the story, but it's really about God. There is a perplexing dilemma that has uh, been in the messianic, the modern messianic movement for as long as I've been involved. And you would think it wouldn't be a dilemma, but it is. And it has to do with not so much from my brethren that come from the New Covenant church background as they come into the messianic movement. It has to do with my Jewish brethren. You see, one of the most fundamental teachings then Judaism is that God is one. The Shema that we canted tonight. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You would think it would be so simple and so plain, but the fact is that that's so entrenched in a certain way of thinking within many of my Jewish brethren that when they come to the new covenant faith in the messianic movement and they wrestle with what part does Yeshua the Messiah have in God is one? And they, many of my brethren struggle with it so much that they come up with all manner of explanation and where they'll make God the Father one, but somehow Yeshua is an add-on. He's, well, he's the son of God. He's not really God. He's not the fullness of God. And they struggle with it. Now, many New Covenant brethren, they've heard that of the Trinity and they, they believe that Yeshua is God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But, but you know, in the Messianic movement, we've got these two things coming together. We've got people coming out of Judaism. We've got people coming out of the church. And they're coming together here. And everybody's assuming that everybody just got this straight. And we don't. We wrestle with this. We struggle with it. I have seen... Gentiles who have come into the Messianic movement cross over. Coming into the Messianic movement, slide right past it and go right to Judaism over this issue. I have seen Jews who've come into the Messianic movement, wrestled with and gone back to Judaism, turn away from the work of the Messiah and who he is. And one of the things that I have tried to teach is that in our faith, and this is at any stage that you want to call it, beginning with Abraham all the way up to this present day, if you're going to lay claim to a particular doctrine or teaching, it better be rooted in Torah. It better be rooted in it. To me, the picture of our base teaching of what God has started, he did, God doesn't have multiple plans. He has one plan. 
He's one God, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one salvation. There are no multiples. Jews don't get saved one way and Gentiles get saved another. If Yeshua is, is in fact the Messiah for the Gentile world, then he is the Messiah for Israel. And if he's the Messiah for Israel, then he is the Messiah for the whole world. And if his teaching holds for Gentiles, then it must hold for Israel and vice versa. It has been my contention and will be that Moses and Yeshua have no different teaching. It's the same teaching. The scripture says it very plainly. Yeshua quoting from Moses, he said, had you believed Moses, you would have believed also in me, for he wrote of me. And he emphatically says that because you do not believe the words of Moses, how will you believe me? How will you understand my words if you don't understand the words of Moses? Because they're one and the same. And there are many men who would like to separate and distinguish and say, no, they're different. Moses is one thing, Yeshua is something else. Moses is one kind of teaching, but he lacks something. And Yeshua is a better kind of teaching. And no, they're the same teaching. They're the same teaching. They're just being spoken at by different men coming from different positions who've not yet quite come to terms with, who've not yet become reconciled to what has really been said. My point being is this. If Moses doesn't teach the plurality of God, what we call the Trinity, then it's not true. Let me say it to you this way. Any doctrine that you believe with regard to God, if it doesn't line up and begin with Genesis 1-1, then don't try to carry it to Revelation 22. Because the book is about one God and one faith. It's not multiple religions. It's one. Just as we say, our God is one. And with that said as a preamble, I want to show you where in the book of Genesis, specifically by the example of our father Jacob with his son Joseph, that he teaches and proves to you that the father and the son are one. And that when Yeshua came and he said, I and my father are one, this is not a new teaching. This is the very teaching that Moses has given to us from the very beginning. So with that having said, I believe that this base teaching is part of the answer to the Messianic movement for my Jewish brethren who are struggling with what, whether Yeshua is deity, whether he is God, how the Holy Spirit fits in, how is he God, and give a basis, a true basis for the new covenant brethren to hold to the teaching of the plurality of God, but that they would begin to endorse not the distinctiveness of that plurality, but rather the unification, the unification of that God into one. There is an ancient teaching, it comes from the prophet Zechariah, that it simply says this. It says that we in this distorted mortal frame as we are, probably are are bumping up against the truth, but we're probably struggling to really absorb it and receive it correctly. And that only after the Messiah returns and only after the kingdom has truly been restored, we'll suddenly now be grasping and dealing with the truth correctly, that we'll be looking back going, oh, that's what God was trying to do. And, and I thought I understood. And, I, and, and they say there's only one teaching that you and I will carry from our mortal frames into the kingdom that will be right. There's only one. 
and is the teaching that says the Lord our God is one. That's the only teaching they say we have any surety of carrying across. I submit to you, brethren, that's the one teaching that we struggle with probably the most. Now, having said all of that preamble and additional introduction, turn with me now to Genesis 47 and let us examine this final portion of Genesis. Verse 28, we begin with Vayeki, which is, and he lived from the words of verse 28, where it says, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so that the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Jacob knows that he's going to be coming to the time of the end. And he had been promised when he had gone down to Egypt, the Lord in Genesis 46 had said, it's all right, Jacob, you can go down to Egypt. Do not be afraid. Go down there. And in fact, uh, he says to him, he says, I will be with you. This is Genesis 37. He says, I will be with you. Genesis 46, rather. I will be with you. I will go with you. And Joseph will close your eyes. So as Jacob comes to the conclusion of his life, he's having this conversation with Joseph. And so he makes his last plea to him. And he requests of him, please bury me back with Abraham and Isaac, my father. Bury me there at Machpelah, where Abraham purchased that ground for a burial, so that we'll all be together. In a strange sort of way, Jacob uh, was doing the last thing that he could do to help his descendants. If he had been buried in Egypt, there is a possibility that others would have stayed but, well, our father is here, so we should stay here. But by being buried back in the land, then the sons would say, let us return to the land of our fathers. And so he was kind of ensuring, if you will, that his descendants uh, would want to return one day. If we look back just for a moment, why did Jacob maybe feel that way? It, it's probably revealed to us in the verse that precedes this portion where it describes how Israel was doing these 17 years in Egypt. In verse uh, 27, it says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen. They acquired property in it. They were fruitful and they became very numerous. Three very good reasons not to leave Egypt. They acquired property. They were fruitful and they became numerous. And any time that a people does those kinds of things, it's very difficult for them to get up and move into the future. And I think Jacob knew this, and so he knew it was important that he be buried back in the land in the hope that a future generation would be able to return to the land at that time, which was the promise. It was God's promise that their descendants would live in that land. But the thing that I want you to take note of is what he does after he gets Joseph's agreement. Verse 31, Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. 
he bowed to Joseph. He wasn't bowing to God. He bowed to Joseph. He said, Joseph, swear to me that you will do this. He did. And then Jacob bowed to Joseph. Which should be asking a huge question. Why is the father bowing to the son? It should be the other way around. It should be Joseph who bows to Israel. So why is Israel bowing to Joseph? Well, if you look back in Genesis 37.10, at the start of when Joseph's life began to take effect, there was a certain dream Joseph had. If you remember the other dream that he had, you know, the sheaves and the leaven sheaves bowed down to his sheaf and the brethren, they got all upset about that because they clearly interpreted, oh, that means us. We're one one day going to bow down to our young 17-year-old brother. And it caused them to become envious and angry. And we know the story of Joseph, how he was cast away and sold and he was raised up to be the viceroy of Egypt. And sure enough, here come the brethren and they bow down to him. And and it says that Joseph remembered the dream. He remembered. In fact, he didn't ask the 10 to bow down. He waited until all 11 were present. That's the reason why he asked for Benjamin so that they could all bow down so that the dream would be true. The destiny that God had given was true. But there was a second dream that Joseph had had that was on this same subject. And in Genesis 37 and 10, it says, and and he related it to his father. What was this dream? Verse 9, he still had another dream and it related to his brothers. And he said, lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father. And to all his brothers and his father, Jacob, rebuked him, saying, what is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? That dream, it was real clear. It wasn't just the brethren who would be bowing to Joseph. It would be Jacob who would be bowing to Joseph. And Jacob reacted to it in a rebellious manner. But I want you to look at verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Until the day came in Genesis 47, and with that Jacob is coming to the end of his life, in which he bows down to Joseph. Why is this so profound and so significant? Because the relationship between Jacob and Joseph, the son who is raised up above all brethren, is the relationship between our Heavenly Father and the Messiah. It's pictured for us. Our Heavenly Father has a son who's become Messiah, who's been sent like the man who was sent, like Jacob sent Joseph, who's been rejected but who has now been put in charge, who will be raised up above all brethren. And there will be a coming a moment when the father will even yield to his son. And the only way that the father can do that is the son has to be God. Now, we're into a zone here where we're trying to explain God to men. Men can't even explain men to men. 
And we're trying to understand God, the creator of men. Now, I don't know that I can fully, in fact, I know I can't, fully explain all the ins and outs of how God is made up and how he does this and how it all works. And I'm not sure I can answer every hypothetical question posed on this subject, but I can tell you this. The Torah clearly teaches us that such things exist and such things are. And if Torah teaches it, then we better be paying attention. So that when Yeshua comes along and he speaks of these same matters, and when Paul comes along in the New Covenant to explain further these matters to us, we should give heed to them because they do have a basis in truth. This great plan of bringing forth the Messiah. Now, that's powerful enough all by itself. But we'll go further and we're now going to see the Son reciprocate to the Father. And this comes as a result of the blessings that come upon his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as well as the blessings that will come upon the other sons of Israel. If we continue in chapter 48. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine, Ephraim. And Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. There's a little play on the word here that you should take note of. When Jacob says, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. In other words, God saying, God said to me, he would make me fruitful and bountiful. He would make me fruitful and numerous. That's the meaning of the name Ephraim. Ephraim means fruitful and bountiful. And so he says, I'm going to lay claim onto the promise of fruitful and bountiful. Your son is now going to be my son. He will be equal to Reuben and Simeon to me. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the names of their brethren in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan at the journey. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Why would he make mention of Rachel at this moment? Well, partly because Joseph was the son of Rachel, Benjamin, his beloved. And so he's speaking to Joseph, his son, he says, and he recounts, his specific mother with him. But it's also understood by the sages of Israel that there's a much more profound thing being expressed here. Rachel will have something to do with Israel's future destiny. A huge destiny of being fruitful and bountiful, of being numerous and realizing what Jacob's promise from God was. That there will be something about Rachel into the future 
that will have a profound effect on what's going on. And in fact, it's from the prophet Jeremiah that he will elaborate on Rachel's future role in the life of Israel. And if you will, turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Beginning at verse 15, Jeremiah says the following. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel was buried at a place just outside of Bethlehem. She was not buried at Hebron at Machpelah with her sister Leah with Jacob. There was a very special place in which Rachel was buried. From the very beginning, and this speaks prophetically to, there will be other events taking place associated with where Rachel wept at. Where did she, why was, why is it that we say that she wept at that place? Because she bore a son, died in childbirth, in which that she wept and died. In fact, she wanted to call Benjamin the son of my sorrows. She wanted, to call him ben, she wanted to call him the son of my sorrows. But instead, Jacob renamed him and called him the only son that he named and called him the son of my right hand. Now, that should just really stand out to you because if Rachel has a future destiny and we know this great plan of God is to bring forth a Messiah, Rachel's going to have something to do with bringing forth the Messiah. In fact, that's what we saw in the life of Joseph who's a type under the Messiah, we see it also in Rachel, that a man will come forth who will be known as a man of sorrows, but he will also become known as he who is seated at the right hand. And Yeshua certainly fulfilled that. He was a man of sorrows in the flesh, but after ascending, he became the son of the right hand. And so Rachel, prophetically, is a part of that whole picture. Let me read to you further now what Jeremiah, having spoken from that, goes on to say. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they shall return from the land of the enemy, and there is hope for your future declares the Lord, and your children shall return to their own territory. Now, Jeremiah is the prophet who specifically spoke to a great event that took place in the life of Israel. That is when Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. It was Jeremiah who said that they will go down to Babylon and they will be there for 70 years and they will return. And he makes reference to Rachel and says, Stop weeping. Your sons will return. And where she buried in the land of Judah. And they would be returning. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end at that point. The prophecy goes on to say this. Verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. Thou hast chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For thou art the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote on thy thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? 
Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. We know about Judah's return. They came back to the land of Judah. Rachel was said, stop weeping. Your sons will return of Judah. But what about Ephraim? Who's the real descendant? What about him who got scattered out? When does he get to come back? There's a day coming when Ephraim will come back and be a part of it. If you go further, and I won't read all of this, but it goes on and it continues to speak of other days coming, that Rachel's going to be involved in the return of other things. In fact, it goes on to specifically say, verse 31, Jeremiah 31, a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke also, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what we call the new covenant. The new covenant. You know, when the Messiah came, he gave us a new covenant. And it says that it would be birthed of, it would have something to do with Rachel. Well, how did Rachel have anything to do with the new covenant? We can see Rachel having to do with the return of Judah. We know there's a future promise of Ephraim coming back. How did Rachel have anything to do with the new covenant? Well, brethren... It's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew that at the birth of the Messiah, King Herod dispatched his soldiers and went down and slew the children of Bethlehem in an effort to destroy the Messiah. And the Gospels record for us that Rachel was weeping for her children at that moment. At that moment. Rachel has a lot to do with the coming of the Messiah, this great plan of what's been going on. And having said that, now that we have that context, we see how Jacob's words, the slightest little thing that he's saying at this moment, at the end of his life, has such profound implications in the life of Israel. You know what we refer to this in the modern legal terms? Refer to this as a deathbed declaration. In fact, Brother uh, Jerry who's a lawyer, he can tell you that any court in this land or in the world, if you are on your deathbed, you're at the end of your days, and you make a declaration, and it is witnessed, it is equivalent to the power. The court will recognize it as that you're speaking truth, and they will treat it as though it's your last will and testament. And so every word, every utterance of Jacob at this point is a powerful Word that will go forward into the future. This reference about Rachel is a good example of that. And then if we turn back to Genesis 48, he does something very interesting with Joseph's sons. Joseph has brought in Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the older one. And so he comes in because of Jacob's eyes aren't so good. Joseph wants his father, to put a blessing on his sons. Now, he knows that the stage has been set because Jacob has said, I'm going to make your sons like my sons. I'm going to put a blessing on them. 
So he brings them in there so that they might receive their blessing. If you recall from the story of Genesis, this business of blessing from the father to the son, this is very important business. From Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob now past Joseph to Joseph's sons. And the blessing that we're talking about is the birthright blessing. It's a very special blessing. Only one son gets it. It can't be shared with other sons. Ishmael wanted some of this blessing but couldn't get it. Esau wanted this blessing after the fact but couldn't get it back. And his brethren of Joseph, they wanted it, but they knew Joseph would be in line. He was going to receive it. And so that's the reason why they were envious. And now two sons of Joseph will come forward. And Joseph is thinking that the oldest, Manasseh, will surely be the one to receive the blessing of the right hand of Jacob. And so he positions him directly in front so that as Jacob is sitting, that he can reach out and put his hand upon Manasseh, his right hand upon him, and his left hand upon Ephraim. So he positions him before that. And instead, what Jacob does is he reaches out the blessing and he reaches over and he puts his right hand upon Ephraim and his left hand upon Manasseh and he does the blessing like this. He puts the blessing on the younger one instead of the older. Follow along as we read here now. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see that Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. You remember it was Jacob who bowed before? Now Joseph bows to his father. The son bows to the father. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Woe. Now, we know about the nation of Israel, 12 tribes. But you mean to tell me that one of the tribes will also become a multitude of nations? What nations? What nations will Ephraim become? 
more than just Israel. If you go back to the history of the scattering of the northern tribes, Ephraim, who was the leader of them, got scattered out into all the nations. We have no idea where they went. And this is a hotly disputed and somewhat confusing prophecy. But the fact of the matter is, Jacob clearly said that Ephraim would go out into those lands of their enemies and he would become a multitude of nations. Ephraim would become a number of nations. He would become not only the leader of the northern tribes, he would become the leader of multiple nations. And those nations would affect become him. Now, knowing that there's a day coming when Rachel is still crying for Ephraim, I want Ephraim to come back. I want Ephraim to still come back. The crying is for a whole bunch of Ephraim, not a little bit of Ephraim. A whole lot more Ephraim than people realize And it's very clear that Jacob has clearly said they will be. And in fact, he emphatically says it to us in this manner. He says, verse 20, and he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel, by you, Israel, shall pronounce blessings say, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. This evening, when we did the blessing, we said Kiddush. And you saw the Ray family come and we were blessing the sons. And each of us were standing with our families and we laid hands on our sons. We used the very traditional blessing comes from this passage where we say to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. What does that blessing mean? If I'm putting a blessing on my son, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. It says that wherever you go, may you be so fruitful and bountiful. May multitudes come from you. Not just good representatives of Israel. May you become a multitude of nations. May you be more fruitful and bountiful than than can be imagined. Even more than we can quite understand. Because that is the blessing that went upon Ephraim. And Jacob knew, had a sense of, this was going to set a standard for blessing that was going to be far above all the other previous blessings of the previous fathers, of Abraham down to Isaac, from Isaac down to Jacob, that this particular blessing was going to be such that into the future they would not be making a greater blessing, they would just simply try to repeat the blessing that is being given at this point. So that every son that would be ever spoken from all of the tribes, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. May you be raised up. Why? Because those are the sons that come forth from the type and the shadow of the Messiah. They are the sons of the son. And Joseph being the type of the Messiah, he's speaking of a future group, a future set of sons that will be sons of the Messiah. There is no greater blessing. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. May you be from Joseph who was raised up above all of his brethren. Verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers, and I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. In effect, he gave him the blessing of the firstborn. He gave him this great blessing, you know, to be for it. And the day will come, When Israel, when they come up out of Egypt, they will carry the bones of Joseph and take him back to the land too because of his honoring 
of his father. So the stage is now set for Jacob's final blessings, which are getting ready to come upon all of his sons, which brings us to Genesis 49. I don't have a whole lot of time here, but I want to really home in on this theme that I've been speaking to, this special blessing that came upon um, Joseph. But let me mention one other that came upon Judah, because Judah and Joseph now are going to take on this parallel pattern into the future of Israel, just as it was Judah who pled the case for Benjamin before Joseph, caused Joseph to yield. And so this blessing between Judah and Joseph is going to carry the nation of Israel forward from this point. This is a classic piece of scripture in which that it's that it, and it's been argued uh, by many as to is Jacob really being prophetic here or is he just putting a blessing on? But we know that the blessings that come from the fathers do have a prophetic message. They do have a prophetic pattern. And so much of what is being expressed by Jacob toward his sons in Genesis 49 does become the destiny in the future of the sons of Israel. It does become the destiny and the future of it. I wish we had more time that we could go into every one of them and show you the prophetic picture of each one. But let me summarize with just Judah and Joseph for the time that we have now. As uh, Jacob now assembles with all of his sons, he's coming to the end of his last moments, his last breaths. uh, Chapter 49, verse 1, Then Jacob summoned his sons and assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. And as he goes down, verse 8, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. It's a, it's a play off of his name. Judah means praise. So he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From prey, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And this passage is where we get the theme of, you. I'm sure you've heard of it, the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. The symbol that is given for the tribe of Judah is a lion. A large, strong creature which is not afraid of anything. By equating him at this level, he says, Judah, you know, nobody's going to be eating on you. You're going to be eating on them. And in particular with your enemies, and I like this, he says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That doesn't mean that his hand is on the back of his neck. The expression that's used here is, your hand is going to be right in his face, right at the front of his neck, squeezing his neck. That's where you will be with your enemies. And therefore, Judah, from this point forward, will become the tribe, which is called the Vanguard tribe. They will be front center right before the enemy, right in his face. Other tribes will be flanking. Other tribes will be rear guard. But it will be Judah who will be straight on into the enemy's face to put his hand right on his neck. And this destiny comes forth by Jacob that uh, is spoken here prophetically. And it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, the scepter, the kingship of the tribe of Israel shall reside with Judah, not with Joseph. They get the blessing, the birthright blessing, the best of everything blessing. But Judah is going to be given the leadership, the kingship of the tribes. And by Jacob's destiny of this, we look for the Messiah to come from the tribe of Judah. Everyone, even in Judaism, agrees with this, that the Messiah must come from the tribe of Judah. 
the king must come through there, that line, this prophetic destiny. Now, there's a lot of controversy with the sages as to exactly what does Shiloh, until Shiloh come, because quite honestly, when Israel, Judah, got kicked out of the land of Israel, they knew that the kingship was to remain with Judah until, and there's a reference to here, the Messiah. Well, Israel, Judah, got kicked out of the land in A.D. 70, and it said they would continue to keep that until, they would keep that until the Messiah gets it which is one of the great arguments for Messiah Yeshua. He did receive it. He did ascend. He is the king of kings. It did come from Judah to the Messiah, correctly as it, and then then Judah got scattered. An argument for why Judah had to remain in the land until the Messiah received the scepter. That's a very um, difficult passage for a lot of rabbis to accept. They want to dispute Shiloh as being the place where Joshua went and and things like that. But the fact of the matter is they don't deny that the scepter does belong to the Messiah and he must come from the tribe of Judah. Now we go down, I want to jump down to Joseph and I want to specifically address what is Jacob's blessing that comes upon him. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. The picture, the symbol of him is a tree, a, 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 a fruit-laden tree and the bow, the branch is, is way out. Do you remember there's another reference to the Messiah being the branch? This fruitful bow that's out there, the symbol of the Messiah. And if you remember, Ephraim means fruitful and bountiful. That's the picture of the branch, fruitful and bountiful, Ephraim. A fruitful bow by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. Meaning, what it means there is that God's hands are guiding you. That you will be on a path in which the God will guide you. You yourself won't. You will think it's of your own strength, but it won't be. It will be God who's actually guiding you to do it. And then he says in verse 24, I want you to take particular note of how Jacob addresses this particular blessing. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with the blessings of heaven above. Did you see the three elements? Did you see the three ways that Jacob expresses this blessing from his God to come upon the descendants of Joseph? The first one, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Who is that? Who's the mighty one of Jacob? Well, if you'll notice in in the parentheses that follow, there's a further explanation. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the shepherd of Israel. Who's the shepherd of Israel? Who came and said, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they know it's me. We know that was the work of the Messiah. And in particular, we know the Messiah to be the rock of Israel. We know him to be the chief cornerstone 
of Israel. The stone that was rejected by the builders has been made the chief cornerstone. The rejected son who's been raised up to become the chief son, the chief stone. The prophets have all spoken of that this would be the role of the Messiah. And so he right from the beginning, he says, from the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the work of the Messiah that will come from him, specifically emphasizes the future Messiah, the blessing that will come upon Joseph. And then he goes further from the God of your father who helps you, who helps you, who helps us. What, what part of God helps us? You remember in John 14 where Yeshua said, I'm going to go back and I and the Father are going to send you a helper. The Holy Spirit will come to you and he will help you. He will comfort you. He will teach you. He will lead you, guide you. He will help you. In fact, one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is the helper. He said, from there, the God who helps you. And then finally he says, and by the Almighty who blesses you. El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And we know it's El Shaddai who specifically spoke to Abraham and started this whole blessing business. It was El Shaddai, Almighty God, who blessed Abraham, who then caused the blessing to go to Isaac, who then caused the blessing to go to Jacob, who now causes the blessing to go to Ephraim. He said that blessing, the blessing from the Almighty God, that blessing, that God who does the blessing. In effect, what, whether you realize it or not, Jacob has just described the plurality of God, what we understand, and he put it on Joseph. The God who will be shepherd to you. The God who will be the stone of Israel. The chief cornerstone of Israel. From the God who will be your helper. From the God who blesses you. The almighty God who blesses you. That's the blessing we're putting. The whole blessing of all of God. You're not going to be able to stand up and say, God is an absolute one. Jacob has just defined God in a plural form. In fact, what he emphasizes and what we said from the Shema when we say God is one, what we should be saying is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai is masculine gender plural. We said Lord. We should be saying Lords. Eloheinu, our God. It's plural. We should be saying Gods, our Gods, the Lords, our Gods. Adonai Echad, the Lords are a unified one, is what it actually says in the Hebrew. We simplify it. We say the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because we're emphasizing that he's unified. He's one. He's pulled together. But in the Hebrew, I guarantee you, you can go back and check this. If we translate it literally, perfectly, exactly as to what it says, we should be saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord's. Our gods, the lords, are one, a unified one. That's the way Jacob describes God and his blessing upon Joseph in multiple parts, in a plural form. You will not find a single place 
in Torah in which that God ever is described in an absolute singular way. In every place, it is in a plural form. If I take you back to Genesis 1 and I show you the verse about the creation of man, it will say, let us make man in our image. God is not made in the image of God. Man is not made in the image of God and other creatures. He's only made in the image of God. And God defines himself in a plural form in creating man. Just here not too long ago in Genesis 46, let me just point it out to you because it will happen many, many times in the scripture. Genesis 46 and verse 2, we've made reference to this about where Jacob went down to Egypt and he was told by God, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I will go down with you. Look what it says in verse 2, how God wakes Israel in the vision of the night. It says, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Why did he call out twice to him? Why did he? Because Jacob couldn't hear the first time. He's brain dead. You know, you know, one to wake him up and one to get his attention. If you go back and you look in Genesis 22, when you see Abraham getting ready to sacrifice Isaac and God goes to stop Abraham from slaying Isaac, here's what it says. Abraham, Abraham, do no harm to the son. Why does he call out to him twice? Same reason that Yeshua is on the cross and when he cries out to God and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because there's two parts speaking. Two parts speaking. One is there, but two parts are speaking. And this will follow suit all the way into the book of Exodus when it shows us Moses going up on the mountain to receive the second set of tablets in which that God, who's now going to describe God to Moses. This is God now describing God. This is not a man describing God. This is not repeating. This is not Moses. Moses is saying, this is what God said about God. And while he's standing in the cleft of the rock, God says to Moses, God, the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and full of mercy. Why didn't he just say the Lord is compassionate? Why did he say the Lord, the Lord God? is because one is speaking and he speaks to the other two. He speaks to both and he describes because they have the same description. Because they're one, they're unified, one. You will not find in the Torah in any place where God is described as an absolute one. He's always described as a unified one. There, to be unified, there has to be parts that come together to make a whole and that is the way God is illustrated to us. Do you remember when I pointed back to you the covenant that God made with Abraham that started this whole business in Genesis? Do you remember how God actually formed three parts of the covenant with Abraham? If you go back and you go all the way back to Lech Lecha, back to Genesis 15, the first part is God brings Abraham away from his father's house and he makes an agreement. He says, I'll bless you. Those that curse you, I'll curse And he brings him out and he says, I'll make you a father. 
He makes a promise to Abraham. He says, come out from your father's house. I'll make you a father. And then the second time that he meets with him, and this is later, he comes and he says, I'm going to give you a son. And then he tells him, make a sacrifice. And they make a sacrifice. And he gives him a promise of a son. Then the third time he comes to him, he comes to him and he says, now that son is getting ready to come here real quickly. Now I'm going to give you a seal, the seal of circumcision. And I change your name. He went from Abram to Abraham. There's three clearly distinctive parts in God's agreement with Abraham. The first one emphasizes the father. The second one emphasizes the son. And the third one emphasizes a seal. And we know, brethren, that the Holy Spirit is a seal for us under eternal life. Beginning with the Torah, this is what it's always been. This idea of the Trinity, this idea that God is in three parts, did not originate with the New Covenant. It originates in Genesis 1. The plurality of God has always been there and always been expressed there, even when we say the word God or Lord. It has always been there. And for those of my Messianic Jewish brethren who would struggle trying to understand how do I pray to, bow down to, how do I honor, how do I submit myself unto the Messiah and still be reconciled to our Heavenly Father, the Eternal One, who's sitting on the throne of God in heaven, who has always been, how do I, how do I deal with this? And so I t- I'll tell you how to deal with it. The same way that Jacob dealt with Joseph. The same way that Joseph dealt with Jacob. And watch Jacob bow down to his son and watch his son bow down to his father. And if you can understand that relationship, then you have no difficulty understanding the relationship that exists between our heavenly father and his son, the Messiah. Now, when we hear the words of the Messiah, when he says, I and the father are one. Did you know that at the moment in John 14 that he said that? Boy, did that get the Jews' attention. In fact, they immediately picked up stones to stone him because he said he was God. Because he said, just like the Shema, the Lord is one. He said, the Father and I are echad. We're one. Yeshua is echad. The eternal one, our heavenly Father, is echad. The Holy Spirit is echad. One, the Lord is one. The Lords are one, just as Moses taught us. This is not a hard concept, but I can tell you, it's a key concept that we must accept. If we're going to say that we know God, we must accept God in the terms and the way that he expressed himself to us. We cannot redefine God back in the face of God. If God says, this is the way I am, then this is the way he is. And denying him is to not know him. You must receive him as he is. Just as you would levy upon any person that you meet. Let's say that I walked up to a man and I said, my name is Monty. And he all of a sudden called me John. Well, you know, John's a nice guy too, but I'm not John. And if he tried to call me John and he kept telling other people about John, he wouldn't be talking about me. I'm Monty. And the same thing is with the Lord. 
You must address him and speak to him as who, how he has described himself. This is key and fundamental, I believe, to knowing the Lord properly. We must accept him on his terms. He accepts us on our terms. That's the basis of our relationship. So if we're going to say that we know him, we have to accept him in that term. Let me give you one last place that I think really profoundly presents this. I have presented this in the past, and there's a lot of brethren who really struggle with this. This just grates against their soul. This is, again, at the deeper level now of the Torah teaching, and it has to do with this title, the Stone of Israel. In the Hebrew, the word stone is the word aben. It's spelled with the Hebrew letters Aleph, Bet, Nun. If I was going to say the word Father or Av, I would be Aleph, Bet. If I was going to say the word Son, I would say Bet, Nun, Ben. Av is Father, Ben is Son. But if I put the two of them together, it would be, and I contracted the two of them together, and I made a new word out of putting father and son together, the word would be aben. It would be the word stone. So when Jacob says, the stone of Israel, the aben of Israel, you, it's the father and the son so unified, you can't take them apart. They're like a stone. You can't take a stone apart. And that is what Yeshua was saying when he said, the Father and I are one. You can't take us apart. You can't recognize one without recognizing the other. You can't call one God without calling the other God and vice versa. You cannot separate. If you do, if you claim to, then you don't know me. You don't know the stone of Israel. And what is said here of Joseph is, is that he would receive this blessing he would receive this great blessing to represent that, to bring that back. I believe that there is a day coming when Ephraim will be returning from the nations. It'll also be the day that the Messiah is returning from heaven. When it'll all be together. We'll all be together. Because there in Jeremiah 31, it says that covenant that was given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah would result in all men, no man would say to another, know the Lord, for all men will know the Lord. That's what it says right there in Jeremiah 31. That's what the result of this covenant will be. All men will know the Lord. So brethren, in our study, as we continue forward, one of the things that we've got to come to terms with is the deity of Yeshua, the deity of the Holy Spirit, we already accept the deity of our Father. We already accept that. But we have to understand that the Father bows to the Son. The Helper bows to the Son. The Helper bows to the Father. And all the combinations thereof. And that the emphasis, the presentation in Scripture is not the distinctiveness of the parts, but rather the unification of the parts. And for us to come to terms with that full unification of who he is, so that we can be properly unified with him, so that we can be the benefactors of all the things that God has intended. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for you being who you are. 
Thank you, Lord, that you have this great and wonderful plan that involves us and that part of your plan is to reveal and to manifest yourself unto us. And Lord, we believe that truth that comes forth from your teaching, your word, the perfect word that is forever settled in heaven, describes you in a plural form to us. So Lord, I would ask, not so much for the audience that is before me at the moment, but I ask and I pray for my many Messianic Jewish brethren who are now coming to the new covenant faith, Lord, to help them to come to terms with who you are, to receive and to know you. And Lord, that you would hasten the day when Joseph, Ephraim, returns from all the nations and that Rachel will weep no more for her children, but that all will have been returned. We ask, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding of these things. Help us to be at peace in our own heart with who you are, with who we are in you. Help us to gain the knowledge of you. And we look forward to the Lord, to the day in your kingdom when we'll all be unified together. And we pray and ask this in the name of your son, whom is seated at your right hand. In Yeshua's name, amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is net. Thank you.